Hello, everybody. I am Mark Levecki. I am the McDonald Scholar for Ethics, War, and Public Life at Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. And this is a, another episode of the Foreign Policy Provcast, the podcast where Providence folks talk about all things foreign policy, military ethics, diplomacy, and the like. I am here with a, uh, well, frankly, a fellow curmudgeon and just war scholar, Keith Pavlicek. Keith Pavlicek is a formerly commissioned Marine Corps officer. He's done intelligence work. He's been a contractor. He's taught. He started all sorts of good institutes in Washington, and he was an early um, sort of founding father to Providence, early contributor. And he is presently in West Virginia, which I have on good authority is uh, – is how do you say it's it's West by God and not Virginia? West by God, Virginia. There you go. And uh, he is currently um, culling deer, and I look forward to uh, maybe participating in some of the uh, fruits of that sometime in the not too distant future. But in the meantime, Keith, we are going to have something of a Friday. It is Friday when this is being recorded. I don't know if I'm going to release it this afternoon, but it is Friday. Actually, this might be important given how events can change, but it's Friday, November 2nd, I believe. Third. Is it the second? Third? Yeah. One, one, one week away from the biggest event of the year, Marine Corps birthday on November 10th. That's next Friday. I, I kind of walked right into that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. I sure did. All right. Uh, so it's uh, it's fr- Friday, and we are going to have something of a gripe session of uh, some of the responses that we've seen to the Israeli-Hamas war, or variously couched as the Israeli-Iran war through their proxies. However you want to couch that, we're going to talk about it. And we're going to get, uh, I think some of our focus is going to be on just responses that we have seen and uh, responses that deserve a counter-response. I think if people think of the early founding of Providence, there are a number of things that we wanted to push against. One was to push against uh, Christian pacifism, which we're going to do some shoving today. A second was to push back against um, sort of a, uh, s- sort of uh, opposite to that, to push against kind of a jaundiced, cynical realism within foreign policy. We want to be realistic, but at the same time, we don't want to disabuse or uh, excise morality from foreign policy altogether. Uh, the third thing was to push against a knee-jerk anti-Israelism which I thought at some point we no longer really had to worry about, only to discover on October 8th, actually, we still do have to worry about that. And I can't remember what our fourth pushback was, um, but there was a fourth one, and maybe we'll inadvertently get to it. But Keith, welcome. Well, thanks. I've been looking forward to uh, having this conversation with you. Uh, I think we said that uh, when we first started to discuss it, I think your first comment was uh, to make it a "we told you so" uh, type uh, uh, conversation, and I, I think there's going to be a lot of that. I yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. I hate to be right, Keith. Well, some of this uh, was like a uh, you know after the after the massacre. Uh, you could the results, the responses were so predictable. It was like big fat hanging curveball. Right. Um, so we're gonna see if we could launch a few into the left field bleachers. I, I, I this this is probably you don't have to bring a confession today, but this is probably something of a confession. Um, I am a dying, continually dying idealist in a lot of ways, and my wife will be the first to tell you I can be hopelessly naive. So on October 6th, I would have expected to have the kind of conversation we're about to have. On October 7th, when things first kicked off, I started thinking this kind of conversation might no longer be necessary. And then October 8th came along, and I realized, oh, no, the same conversations have to happen. Yeah, I guess I was, uh, I knew that you were going to, that we were going to see the kind of responses we eventually got, but I thought it would be, it would take a while because the magnitude of the slaughter. And I thought it would be uh, a while uh, and maybe wait until uh, 
Israel mobilized and were able to begin the ground invasion. But it started, it's it's it started immediately. It started immediately. I, I don't even know if the corpses were all cold, frankly, when people started slinging nonsense. Well, you know, we at Providence, and 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 I've done this in particular in lectures and and writing is. Pushing back at pacifism, yeah, but not. But I've made a point to push back even more on um, not so much pacifism, but what we've termed uh, maybe a crypto pacifist mm-hmm. or functional pacifist interpretation of the just war tradition. What, what do you and, expound on that? What is what is that? Yeah, I, it, it, we we've been talking about this for almost thirty years now. Um, our, our friend Jim Johnson and George Weigel call it the presumption against war position. Um, I think more accurately, I think it was Daryl Cole came up with the term that the the view that views the just war tradition or just war theory as a limited exception to pacifism. And so when you when you see when you understand the use at uh uh in bellow or use at bellum in those terms, it fundamentally distorts the classical meaning of the tradition from top to bottom. And so if, and if so you were to, we've if you were to summarize that distortion. What is the what is the the key takeaway? Yeah. So so it's what happens is you know you know uh, you get these lists of the of the uh, justification for going to war that you said at Bellum, and so there's you know. We don't want to, re, 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 you know, right intention, legitimate authority, just cause. Now, those are what's those are the those are the causes that permit you to go to war and Augustine and Aquinas and, and the tradition. And then there is a list of other, like last resort, proportionality of ends. Uh, what else is in there? Uh, last last resort. Probability of success. Probability of success. These are all practical, you know, these are all practical. uh, uh, Prudential considerations. Yeah, prudential decisions made by policymakers in going to war. And, but what happens in the tradition, what happens when, you you know, you take a pacifist approach toward these things or a crypto pacifist approach is you invert, you invert, you invert the priority so that so that just cause right intention become secondary when in fact they're the deontological or they're the they're the duty bound most important core of the tradition and then and then those who are in authority take a look at the prudential calculations and there's a logic behind that because even if you got a just cause I mean, if you're going to commit national suicide and responding to the just cause, even with the right intent, that's like probability of of success. So, so those get inverted. That's you you said at Bellum, but uh, and I guess what we're going to discuss today is the way the use in Bellow criteria of of uh, discrimination or non-combatant immunity um, and um, and proportionality get uh, get distorted, right? Um, it, and distorted so that so that what is in effect what they allow in through the back door is you know is is a pacifist stance anyway. I think they're they're obviously well not obviously because not everybody does so, but they're obviously to be connected, right? The use ad bellum when is it right to fight, and the use in bellow how do you rightly fight the fight that's right to fight. And I think they're connected in a number of ways. The one that's important maybe here is if you do this inversion, actually, let's get to the inversion in in a second. The way you cash it out, I think, is exactly right. You've got the deontological duties. And And I've learned to put the stress on it this way, not to say that if you've got a proper authority who identifies a just cause and who has a proper aim, that person is now permitted to fight. 
I say, well, no, the tradition actually says you're blind. You are not obligated to fight, but you have to fight. And then you look at the prudential criteria, and if it turns out that wisdom so strongly mitigates against the doing of your duty, then you stand down. But that is a tragedy, and it's not how it's supposed to be. Things are so awry that you can't do your duty. And and that should be that should register as, as a tragedy. When you invert those and you 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 know have the prudence first and and there's these almost insurmountable obstacles before you can go to war. Then when you look to the in-bellow, how do I rightly fight this fight that's barely right to fight? Now, all of a sudden, I start grading battlefield tactics against my overwhelming desire to not be fighting. And I give myself every excuse available to not do certain things. Whereas if you keep the duty first, you might determine, you know what? This particular tactic is going to be god-awful. There are going to be dead kids. There are going to be women blown apart. This is going to be horrible. But this is the this is militarily necessary, and it is the only viable tactic that I have at my um, you know in my quiver by which I can begin to move toward the war aims. Yeah, you, you mentioned military necessity. I had seen years ago um, in a few of the lists that and. Um, of the Invello list, one was military necessity. So in addition, uh, and I always said, well, that's odd because you, you know you just military necessity shouldn't be included as a use in use in Bellow list. It's just simply assumed, right? But I, I've been thinking lately, maybe we need to stick those in there because I mean, as you know, and we'll get into this military proportionality the in particular is is uh is proportional to what it's proportional to the military necessity the it's to be measured against the 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 just tactical operational strategic objective uh not not uh not what tit for tat <laughs> yeah it's not a tit for tat thing you know it's like what would be proportional well they raped you know 50 women and killed 40 babies if we limited our response, if we limited our response, no. So, I mean, it's absurd. So, I just um, got off. Uh, I, I did a, a similar recording earlier today. I don't know when it's going to drop with Robert Kaufman uh, from Pepperdine. And he closed out by saying, I'm going to butcher the quote. So, we'll have to check out the, uh, the podcast when it comes out. But he was talking to uh, someone, a former professor or supervisor of his who pointed out that the work of scholarship very often is to just talk about the obvious. And sometimes... <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. You know. Well, it, yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's I guess, our task, because there's so much uh, silliness out there. Um, I mean, it, just, it just occurred to me that um, uh, we had mentioned this before, that... Uh, I thought it was going to be a while before we're going to have to respond and address questions of proportionality, but be, yeah, I thought it would be wait until the ground invasion, but um, it started right away. And um, in, in fact, over at, over at national review, one of the senior editors, Michael Doherty mm. um, actually picked up on the piece I wrote on proportionality for the New Atlantis back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm happy to say he quoted me extensively. Uh, and favorably. On, in, in favorably, favorably. Not, yeah. And um, and then and then it was later picked up by Charlie Cook, who I think is a great guy over there as the um, as the pick of the week. So I got a little bit of positive publicity on that but that was i, I thought this was i was the only 10th. one who liked you <laughs> yeah so uh that was that was october 10th that was like three days after the the slaughter yep and and so um uh you know as you say you know part of this oh, oh what i was going to say was that um that in that article i quote uh michael walzer and i've I, you've heard me quote Walzer when he was writing in Parameters 
explaining what we had been talking about, how this is Michael Walzer, who is a secular, he's a lefty. He's a democratic socialist. He's, he's uh, uh, always been like that. He, I, I make the crack these Bernie Sanders with brains, right? But he, he, uh, pointed out in that article how exactly what we were saying that that um, so much of just war theory has become, you know, just a, a false justification, uh, uh, and uh, by a whole host of clerics and journalists, and you know, to to demonstrate that there's no war that they could ever support. So right. I I like the I mean that's pretty good that's pretty good company to you know so jim johnson and and george weigel have been thumping on that i've been pounding you've been pounding the providence people have been pounding and all of a sudden here comes here comes um here comes michael walzer specifically addressing the distortions yeah. of proportional now i go on later to 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 criticize walzer's we don't need to get into that, uh, but maybe we could post, you know, when we post this, post a, a link. Yeah, good. Uh, because yeah, good. I spent I spent some time trying to get at Walzer's uh, attempt to alter the traditional doctrine of double effect, mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's a little bit too much for just a conversation. But um, it, it it might be. Although when we, we talk about some of the, you know, Gene Elstein, uh I mean, all sorts of people do this, but you know, Gene constantly rattled on about the importance and began to make basic distinctions. And you know, if we, if we put together a gripe list, you know, the the butchery people have been making of proportionality that's going to be on there. Um, you know, Christian pacifism or crypto pacifism is going to be on there. But it's certainly another one that has come out since October seventh is the continuing inability of otherwise intelligent people to make basic distinctions between good and evil, terrorist and legitimate soldier, just cause, unjust cause, and all the like. And one of the places that they'll they'll do this, of course, are the photographs and the reports of dead children. And for somebody to, you know, they will say a, a dead Palestinian child is equivalent to a dead Jewish child. And if that's all I said, well, of course, that's true. But if you want to suggest that a, a dead Jewish child on October 7th is the same as a dead Palestinian child on October 15th, who was killed in an airstrike because Hamas was, you know, storing ammunition in his home or his school or the building next door, now we've got issues. And so when people talk about intention and therefore double effect does come into view, these are basic decision or distinction-making mechanisms that people have just abandoned. Yeah. So um, my this leads right into uh, a post. Well, it was a, I, I'm not on I'm not on Twitter or X or, or I I would probably I I'd probably be canceled. Scorched Earth, Pavlashek. It would be scorched Earth. Yeah, I, 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 I'm bad enough on Facebook, but um, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I don't do X. But I, 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 um, I, I know that Frank, my friend Fran, Francis Beckwith, Frank Beckwith, down at uh, down at Baylor, is a philosopher, very good analytic philosopher, moral moral theologian. Um, he, he. Um, sent me this uh he had posted um well i'll just tell you he said he, he, he's an analytic philosopher so like uh i have enough analytic philosophy under my belt to uh to uh be a little dangerous uh he's really good so he he, he uses this thought experiment he he says uh imagine that the only way that Jews could stop the Nazi camps was to bomb military installations in in Berlin neighborhoods. Okay. Would the Jews be justified in acting or must Jews cooperate with their own genocide when their self-defense may unintentionally kill innocents? Okay, and and so this may be too much inside baseball, but there's a he got a response from John Milbank. Who is you know one of the you know he's a 
a very prominent uh, moral theologian. Okay, written multi volumes. Okay, um, he says it does not. He says Malik puts things well and is unreserved in his condemnation of Hamas. Okay, so okay, I'm con- condemning Hamas. Hamas. Well, that's very courageous. The answer to a atro- here's what he says. The answer to atrocity cannot be counter-atrocity, not even of a, quote, less bad, unquote, kind. So think about that for a second. Get right exactly what you said. The, the, the bombing of military installations with the, with the unintended side effects of harming German civilians is morally equivalent. It is an atrocity, just like the atrocity of taking Jews to the ovens and making lampshades out out of their skins. Uh, Now, there are some things that are so stupid and ignorant that you have to be a modern theologian (laughs) to endorse. Yeah. And, then, you know, you can Google John Milbank and, you know, but, but uh, I mean, it's astounding. This is an elemental distinction, right? By intent alone. Um, you know, and, you know, this, this reminded me, I was at a, oh, this was in the nineties. I was at the, up at the war, um, Carlisle. Uh, Army War College. Yeah. The Army War College. And, there was a similar question. I remember Jim Johnson was there, in fact, and, and one of the hypotheticals was thrown out. You know, if we had known, you know, that the 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 death camps were there, and that we could run an airstrike close by the air the the death camp, you know, and take out some guards, you know, but we also know that that we could actually harm the prisoners there. And, you know, there was a bunch, a bunch of hee-hawing back and forth. And I, if I was exasperated. I said, wait, there, you know, you can make, there's two mistakes you can make in, in ethics. One is to make really um, hard decisions too easy, right, and, and be flippant about it. The other one is to make easy ones hard. It's If I know that... <laughs> that the unintended effect of my strike might kill some prisoners who are heading to the ovens, right? Why is that a, why is that a difficult call, right? Uh, and, of course, you, you're trying—what is your intent? Your intent is to stop the genocide, right? And the unintended but perhaps foreseeable effect, you know, because of the maybe inaccuracy of the weapons— uh, would would be to harm innocents, even those you are aiming to help. Um, it, you know, so um, we could go. We, you know, I guess we could go on. There are multitude of examples. You and I had discussed a few days ago the breakout of Normandy. You know, um, and we were we put Allied civilians at risk because we had to get off the beach. Was it yes. Sun Low? I. I don't have my Michael Walzer book, but he has an extended discussion of that in uh, Just and Unjust Wars. No, absolutely. And at, at one point, we needed to put rubble in the street in order to prevent their reserve, you know, uh, tanks from being able to come up to the beach. But by putting rubble into the street, the best way to do that was to put apartment buildings into the street. Those apartment buildings were populated by a bunch of Frenchmen. And that is ghastly. Um, but by bombing those buildings and putting that rubble on the streets and preventing those tanks from pushing us off the beach, we were able to liberate France. And so all these, if you look at any one of these actions in isolation, right, you might say, well, yeah, we're not going to do that. That's horrible. But if you look at these discrete actions as they pile on top of one another and lead to greater and larger realities, then you begin to realize, oh, like, actually, this fits into something much bigger. And, you know, I've, that's been one of my frustrations is people look at proportionality and even discrimination um, in isolation. This one event, this one attack, this one possible operation 
rather than to ask themselves, where does this particular tactic, tactical operation fit into a larger campaign? And how did that larger campaign fit into a larger battle, fit into a larger war aim? Uh, we and don't the, do that. Yeah, yeah and, the, and the gravity of the evil you're fighting. That, well, that's right. So that, that means, again, that's another place where the ad bellum and the in bellow come back together. Like I might expect the IDF to fight in increased um, grim ways than I might have expected the English or the British fighting the Argentinians over the Falkland Islands. There wasn't as much at stake, right? Yeah, um, and there weren't civilians either. So it's... Right. I mean, but but I I think we listen. I, I, we just have to say it as bluntly as possible that the IDF, in terms of their adherence to the laws of war, correct, and the use in bellow, are playing way inside the lines. Right. That's right. I mean, if if you use a football metaphor, if the if the out of bounds, they're playing inside the hash marks. Yep. Um, and there, and this is where I think we're getting into territory that's not just about the laws of war. Um, we, you know, it's like we, I don't know, I'm, you know, the international community expects of Israel what they would never expect of anybody else. Right. Why? You know, well, yeah, let's just call it what it is. It's anti-Semitism. It's Jew hatred. I mean, I, I it, it's Jew hatred. That that may be another conversation we we have. But why is Israel uniquely condemned? Right. Um, I mean, who else? I mean, who, this was this was the point that we were making back in two thousand eight, nine, and ten. You know, when they were blathering on about portionality and without asking the question, who's responsible for, for putting these civilians into harm's way? Right. With, you, like Walzer says, and I quote him, is, is that proportionality is, is the easy, it's the cheap and easy way to avoid the question of responsibility. So if you've got headquarters, arms and infrastructure under a hospital where does the responsibility shifts for the damage that comes if that's struck well in international law it's crystal clear it 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 it, it, it falls on the people that have put them there and right. and and israel goes the further you know goes a step further by warning right so i, I yeah, and I I think it's it's um, I mean I think it's Jew hatred, it's anti-Semitism. We talked more about this, but it's also a carryover mark from from the twentieth century way of viewing uh, wars of national liberation, and became a way to say that the civilian protective standards that that were put in place by the international laws and even conventions and the like um, don't apply in unconventional warfare or guerrilla warfare or more fundamentally between the uh, 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 what we call now the oppressed and the 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 colonizers and the colonized right. right right it's it's the same thing it's the it's it's the maoist guerrilla playbook in right. which in which the convention's civilian protective standards wear uniforms or wear signs openly carry arms openly um and um and 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 even um uh, um you know, you know, the Maoist supported selective terror and hostage shield tactics, hostage tactics and selective terror. So those couldn't 
those those can't apply those can't apply because it's not a fair fight between state actors and of course the just war tradition says that you need that's legitimate authority they don't have the authority to do that um uh there's more to say about that but um uh the civilian protective standards don't apply to those who fighting you know, you know wars of national liberation uh and so it's a it's a you know it's a it's a carryover from that but by the way that's what that's why in the in the 1980s i think it was 1987 um the united states refused uh under the administration the, the reagan administration and had wide support in congress not to to ratify protocol 1 of the of the geneva accords with explicit justification i looked at this the other day explicit justification that um that it would support and condone terrorism. So the international the international community was moving towards, you know, a, a lowering of those of those uh civilian protective standards uh for revolutionary groups. So so you would think that after the defeat of the Soviet Union, the collapse of Marxist movements worldwide, you know, you would not have this month's sympathy holdover when you're dealing with jihadi terrorists, right? But here we are. <laughs> We've got a rise up in support of of uh, of uh, uh, of Hamas, who quotes the protocols of the elders of Zion in their in their charter. You know, it sounds like you know you know inter- international something out of. The, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, uh, and it gets the support of American leftist intellectuals. Uh, so it's it's that convergence of of uh, old Marxism, particularly the Maoist insurg- insurg- insurgent strategies, with this new, you know, uh, um, uh, postmodern colonial anti colonial theme and. And and so we, it's it's shocking. It's you know it's shocking to a lot of us to see the kind of stuff that's going on at campus, and 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 it's it's frustrating, you know, because we tend to think, oh yeah, I just what I need to do is expose their contradictions and show the logic, what what the logic of their position leads to being unable to respond to gross acts of terror and massacre. Uh, you know, and you do that, and you win the arguments, but, but you know it doesn't matter. It's like it, it, it usually does it. I, you know, I wanted to add to your to your list of things that have fallen into the stew. I wanted to add colossal ignorance and say, well, you know, a lot of these people they simply don't understand the history. They talk about stolen land as if the Palestinians had always been there, as if the Palestinians had always been a people. You know, on on and on, on. Oh, we just got to clean up their ignorance. And they'll be able to make better rational moral judgments. And for some of them, that works. But for a vast host of them, you discover, ah, there's an ideology behind your ignorance um, that once you're disabused of your ignorance, you're still going to stick to the ideology. And then that's where we get into the Marxist, anti You know, old Catholic moral theologians talked about vincible ignorance and invincible ignorance. Or culpable ignorance and inculpable ignorance. But what you've just disguised is there are some people that are that uh, that are they can't be blamed for their ignorance simply because they haven't been tutored. But they could be tutored. They could be tutored, instructed, and they would they would learn the history. They would learn the tradition. They would they would learn the logic, the moral logic, right. Uh, of the just war tradition in particular and, and the broader history behind international law. And then there are some people that will just simply tell you, no, uh, the just war tradition, international law is a tool, is a, is a tool of the colonizers and a tool of the oppressors. And so, you know, we need, need to get, uh, need to get beyond that. And those people, uh, the, and I'm, I'm afraid the latter, uh, are, are on the ascendancy and 
those people have tremendous cultural power in this country. Which brings it, we may have mentioned this in passing in some past, you know, it's like that. And I've heard, I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts and, you know, you just got to, what prompts this is that, you know, some of these crazy protests on campus, I mean, just pure Jew hatred, you know, stuff. And you, you see some prominent millionaire Jewish philanthropists and stuff, you know, um, uh, cutting off funds to go to Harvard or Columbia or some of these other places. And of course, some of us, some of us want to say, I mean, it took the slaughter of October 7th for you to understand, you know, what is going on. Uh, you know, you, you know, you say we're curmudgeons, but it's like, come on, man, this is like right under your nose. Then there are, there are, there are, you know, of course they get dismissed as being neoconservative or whatever, who, Jews who who say, yeah, we kind of told you know it's like we kind of told you so, and the rest of us we say, well, we told you so, and now all of a sudden they're waking up and so I don't know, I you know it's like maybe I mean I I don't know what to think it, it, it is it, it, is this is the rot so deep that it's not going to turn around will it be will people will this open people I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Okay. It's, so let, let's let's turn to you know let's let's go against our own grain and be naively optimistic for a moment, intentionally so. Um, I've had a number of phone calls from pastors over the last couple of weeks saying, "Okay, look, I've read your stuff. I know where you're coming from a little bit, but I still don't know how to talk to my congregation about this. So here are my questions." Um, you know, college students at the National Security Conference we just recently held, um, you know, Christian college students who want to know how to think about these things, because they see the news reports, they see ghastly things, they see things that they know ought not to have to happen, or ought not to happen. And, and it, it you know, and, and then they see their peers, and even their professors, uh, advocating or supporting Hamas, uh, denigrating what the Jews are doing, the Israelis are doing. And, you know, you would have to be a fairly stout young man or woman to not, you know, just fall into a moral paralysis and not know what to do. So let's imagine the scenario. Um, you've got an honest, confused, young Christian college student who comes to you and says, look, like, I, I think I grasp that there are times where we have to fight. Now, I think that goes against what I think is the character of Jesus, but I get it. I've heard the explanations. I'm willing to believe that there are times that good people have to fight and that either that's compatible with being a Christian or, you know, maybe I take an Iberian turn and it's still wrong, but it would be more wrong not to do it. And so I've got some guilt and sin I'll have to deal with. But the Christian response should still be defined. I get all that. But Mr. Pavlicek, um, I get that October 7th was horrible. Uh, but the response has been sufficient. Like, I get the proportionality thing, or I half get it. Okay, all of that, fine. But look, by now, aren't we done? Shouldn't there be a ceasefire? Shouldn't we try to reconcile? Why do we have to push for the end of Hamas um, when? between now and the end of Hamas are going to be more dead Palestinian kids. How do I think about that, Dr. Pavlicek? So he's honest. He's not being belligerent. Well, well yeah, well, assuming, I mean, assuming that they've internalized what we would consider the tradition, that is, that we would, uh, assuming that they've been taught what they have not been taught that that okay, I can I could sit with them and begin to do, discuss from the New Testament, you know, and and uh, you, you know what I could do exegetical work. I could discuss Aquinas and Augustine, the medieval tradition, what their former say. I, I I could say, listen, I'm not I'm not making this stuff up, you know, I. You know, and 
assuming they've internalized that. So now it's a prudential question, right? So why, so what you're asking me, they, they've, they've, a, they understand the use in Bellum and use at Bellum, right? And so then you go, then the discussion has to go in, okay, what is the magnitude of the threat that Israel, who can justly respond, right? Uh, in other words, they, they've already assumed, yes, there is a, there, they can respond with the use of force, lethal force, military force. So their question is, you know, why the elimination of Hamas? And I would take them to the gravity of the threat. Now we're going to do geopolitics. Sure. And I would take them to what Hamas believes. What do they believe? They believe, this is not just anti-Zionism. They believe in the elimination of Jews. It's in their charter. They keep, I would urge people to please read them. Listen to what their leaders say. 1987 Hamas charter clearly dictates the the obliteration of the Some some will uh, equivocate and say, well, it says the Jewish state. There could still be a place for Jews. You could have. You cannot read that that charter. No, you You, can't. You cannot read that charter and read it as. And and in fact, I mean, I I wrote a piece and maybe we could post this a a while back. Uh, I was very much impressed by this book by Matthias Kunzel, who wrote uh, Jihad and Jew Hatred in. Like this was this was like two thousand five six something like that, but he was a former Green Party member, a lefty in the Germ in in Germany, and he started to do research on where exactly, where exactly did the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas is a is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza. The Muslim Brotherhood and, wasn't belligerent enough. Yeah, well, he tra- he tracks. The Jew hatred, right, to the Muslim Brotherhood, um, through the Grand Mufti of it, it was imported from Nazi Germany. Right, right, right. It was that the, the the exterminationist Jew hatred, right, has intellectual roots in Nazi Germany. Now, now, not not all of of the anti. Jewishness in the Middle East is 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 rooted in that. Sure. Hamas's is. Where do you get the protocols of the elders of Zion? Right. So uh, there's also a very strong strain in Islamist teaching that you know once a once a territory um, is held by uh, uh, Islam, you know it can't go back. Right. And so the very existence of the state of Israel is an affront to pious, um, pious Muslims. Right. It's it's so it it, so it's sort of a mix of traditional uh, traditional Islamist notions and this this um, Nazi inspired uh, uh, Jew hatred. So. After I go through that, you know, I say, okay, this is the threat they face. It, it's an existential threat. Why do you think when you walk down the streets of Israel, you see 19, 18-year-old little girls carrying submarine, submachine guns? All right. Because, uh, why? Because they're a militaristic state? All right. You know, it's like, it's an existential threat. It's, mm-hmm. and, and we Americans don't understand that. We don't get that. We don't get that. You know, at all. We, we, you know, we're calling Hamas a tactical threat to the people of Israel. Right. And, um, I, right. I think there's a strong argument. Bob Kaufman will make this argument in the, in the podcast we did. There are no tactical threats to the people of Israel. Every threat is, is an ex- existential threat. Yeah. Like, and it's Israel not like God. Decides, yeah. And it's not like God. It's not like uh, Hamas. Hamas is simply. One proxy, right? 
in the, in the greater Iranian and, and Iran, it's like Iran, had, once you accept the fact that, that the, the Sunni, uh, um, uh, Muslims in the Muslim Brotherhood are aligned with Iran, with a common enemy, you know, and Hezbollah, right? And so it's all you got to do is look at a map. It's like they're surrounded. Right. <laughs> and, Maps are and, what's that? Maps are important in this. They're essential. It, it, that's right. And so. And 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 then I would go on, and I would go on to a discussion of how, listen, they could have had, they could have had a two-state solution in 1999, and what happened? <laughs> what? 1948. Well, yeah, but okay. I mean, I mean, I'm talking more recently. You know, it's like yeah. it, you, you know, after all the issues, 1999, two-state solution. And what did they choose? They chose Intifada, the second Intifada, yep. and, uh, and 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 um, anyway. So it's not like and 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 then finally, I think it's a it's a it's a cliche, but it's it's no less. I mean, it's no less a truth because it's a it's a cliche. Well, as Golden Meyer said that if the um, if if the uh, Palestinians uh, put down their arms and created a state, there would be peace in the Middle East. If the Israelis put down their arms, uh, they would be uh, they would be utterly destroyed. Right? That that's that, that's a you know, and then Israel does Israel. Again, we're speaking to this college student who has imbibed the just war tradition, rightly understood. Um, Israel doesn't want Gaza. They, they, they don't want it. They withdrew from it. They, they dragged some settlers kicking and streaming out of there. I, right? I, th- I think I Googled it. Maybe the number doesn't matter, but it was some 9,000 settlers, I think. I mean, it was no small operation. Yeah. I mean, it was like it was they dragged them out of there and said, "Okay, you got it. And so, again, why do we expect of Israel facing an existential threat to behave like we would not expect anybody else to behave? Right. You know, it's it's and, and and that's where I get to, you know, the abomination of Jew hatred and anti-Semitism. No, that's right. And then you, and, you know, and then you could drag into this conversations about the responsibilities of sovereigns. And you look at Israel as a sovereign state and the way they are treating and protecting their people. You know, basic function of being sovereign is to to maintain the order and the justice and therefore the peace of your own people. You compare that to Hamas; they get duly elected in two thousand and six. They promptly suspend elections in two thousand and seven, and then they press on with the subjugation of their own people and. You know, somebody, I think it was Rebecca Heinrichs, uh, disputed the notion uh, that Hamas uses their own people as human shields. And what she meant by that is they're not human shields. You use a human shield when you don't want the people to be killed. Like, they're perfectly happy for the people that they're hiding behind to be killed because it works into their propaganda war, which is the only war they can possibly win. Yeah, it's a it's a double double cause, just like it is for all insurgencies. You know, if you if you. If you uh, if you abide by very strict civilian protective stand- standards, uh, or, or if, you, if if you if you uh, or, or or rather if you want to be so humanitarian, you won't accept any unintended but foreseen casualties. Well, then they win because right. you can't attack. So it just promotes that kind of behavior. But if you do, they use it as a a uh, a propaganda, you know, they win the propaganda war because people are, you know, don't understand that that the real, the, you know, the real reason for them doing this is to make them immune from attack, and then they can do whatever they want. Um, yeah, and the other thing, the other thing is, it's related to your question. Is I would point out that 
you know, Israelis were at each other's throat for like a year. Yep. I mean, it was really bad. Was right. <laughs> the folks over at commentary says, you know, you know, if you, if if they really want to be successful in tearing in, in in opposing Israel, just let them go. They'll be at civil war. Just leave them alone. And so you had you had these mass protests, and you know the people were saying, "Oh, we're not going to we're not going to serve in the you know we're going to we're not going to serve in the reserves anymore." So you had these massive protests. Can you imagine saying, "I'm not going to serve in the IDF"? Right. You, and um, you had people not showing up for duty. They'd be called up for regular duty, and they would not show up. So you yeah, so Hamas for miscalculating. So and I'm not even sure it was over. Judicial reform. It's like, I, and I don't know enough about it, but I, it really, it, it got them going. They were going crazy. And it, it's like, so, you know, that's the normal stuff of democracy, right? But, but after this attack, Boom. I mean, it's like, they're unified. The, the way left, everybody's unified. The, 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 the left, the left is on board now, you, you know, so, you, so, um, um, <laughs> you know, so you've got consensus, and you know when the when the wolf is at your door, you know, you know, the you know the family, you know, stops shooting at each other, and they break out the shotguns to shoot the wolf. Absolutely. Oh, now somebody's going to say, "Oh, you've dehumanized the, the Hamas." I'm sorry, I used that metaphor, but hey, the I, point I, is, actually, I think you're being cruel to the wolf, Bev. But, yeah. So I mean, yeah. The 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 only way I can see the sense behind what Hamas did, presuming that Iran told them to pull the trigger, is you know they they maybe they gambled on Israel not being able to call up a sufficient force to strike back. But I I I'd, I'd be surprised that they'd make that miscalculation. They might have. But you know I think Iran also looked at the geopolitics in the region. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Saudi Arabia wanting to begin to join the Abraham Accords, and they needed to try to demonstrate to Israel's would-be friends that Israel is not as strong as you think they are. They're not a good partner for you. And Israel now, and this isn't, you know, Israel needs to demonstrate that they are what they've always been. They are tough and strong, and they can win this fight. Well, after it was, I mean, I mean, first thing, one thing I think there's a consensus is that um, BB, he's got a reputation of being a you know, hard, hard guy, right? Oh yeah, but, I fell in love with him in the first Gulf War. But he, but he, um, I think the consensus is that he and the IDF took their eyes off the ball. Oh, for sure. You know, they 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 started to focus on the West Bank. They thought Hamas was, um, uh, you know, uh, Hamas boasted about it. There was an interview between a Hamas official who's who laughed. You know, and said, we made the Jews think for two years that we had become serious about governing our people. But <laughs> we were really planning this attack. So, I mean, the political result is going to be BB's done, regardless of how this uh, ends. Um, but um, I think it's also, I think Hamas overplayed their hand in another way, because I think, I think not only were they focusing on the West Bank, but the Iron Dome and David's sling probably gave Israelis reason to believe that they could uh, move forward as d d in a defensive posture. And from what I understand, they began to retract from a lot of their offensive positions and, and they won't make that mistake. Quite. Yeah. There's going to be, it's too early to really, it's, I've, I've read some stuff because it was obvious, you know, the way my mind works, it's like, well, this is an intelligence failure. How did they mess this up so bad? So I've read some pieces. I think Wall Street Journal's done some good coverage. That that there's going to be some more on that. They clearly, I mean, it, it seems the initial reports were that they shifted to some technical means. They shifted to the West Bank, and so, but that's a, uh, I mean, that's a story that's going to be told, and it's going to be told in all its ugliness. Um, and I mean, but. Um, yeah, it's yeah, anyway. It's a, it's a, oh the oh the other thing that was initially said is that they 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 may have underestimated 
the Hamas may have underestimated the, the success that they would have. In other words, it was so, it was so, un, it was, they were so unprepared to meet, um, the defense was minimal. I mean, I mean, right away, people were saying, where's the IDF? Where's the IDF? It's like when you've got civilians and police, you know, down there saying, where's the IDF? Somebody screwed up. And, you know, they would, you would, you would have thought they would have met more resistance. And Hamas was probably expecting more resistance. And basically they had a freeway into a, into a rock festival. Um, and, and so, they were overly successful. How that would have been calculated, you know, end of the early reports. So anyway, your broader question was, how do you have a discussion with somebody who is now no longer culpably ignorant of the Christian tradition, right? And it's not a pacifist. Well, you know, once to once to understand the just war tradition and how to think about these things, then you're doing ge- geopolitics and uh, people of goodwill can, can, can kind of disagree. You know, it's like, and, and then that goes to U S policy. It's, uh, uh, you know, I think, I think dark carriers are, are there to, to, you know, to give a big warning to Hezbollah to not open a second front, you know, and to give a warning to Iran we can do some damage here, and um, and now I guess you know I'm, I'm I'm willing to have an argument with people on geopolitics. You know, somebody who's you know um, thinks well, maybe we ought to maybe we ought to send those carriers to Taiwan or something. I I, I don't know. I, I I think I think it's a pretty good decision to go and and uh, and and. and and help out the Israelis on uh, not opening another front. But those are questions of geopolitics. The question of whether whether Israel can justly, it is a just cause to eliminate as a threat Hamas seems to me to be obviously a just cause. Right. And then and and then all we got to do is talk about about the means gotcha. um and um and of course the, the question will arise well once you once you once you've eliminated them i mean what's hamas 2.0 going to look like mm-hmm. you know that that's i i get it that's a that's a legitimate question that's also one i'm willing to kick down the road right you know uh and and uh, hamas 2.0 having their infrastructure utterly destroyed you know, and that memory, you know, um, and, you know, maybe getting the UN in there, you know, to do the humanitarian work. Yeah, I mean, it, it kicks it down the road, that question, but it also kicks it back to the Palestinian people. Now, they will hopefully very soon have an opportunity to demonstrate to themselves and to the world um, who they want representing them. And if they really do bring in Hamas 2.0, that's one set of answers. If they begin to move toward towards some, you know, outfit that can begin to move toward being a more responsible political community, but they wouldn't be Hamas 2.0. It's like, you know, this is where this is where I just say, it's like, what do you want? I want you to fall on your knees. You know, it's like reminds me of uh, what, what Braveheart. You know, but you know, what do I need you to do? <laughs> I need you to fall. <laughs> I won't say it. I'm not supposed to swear, but um, um, you know, I want you to beg, beg the you know the forgiveness of the Israelis for quoting the protocols of the elders of Zion and for all that Jew hatred nonsense in your charter. Once you do that, you know, then we'll talk business. You know, um, but when you put it like that, maybe that's further cause for completely eliminating them. Well, to riff on Churchill, Israel, as you and I have argued now for an hour, has to be decisive in the fight. And then to continue the riff, I hope after the fight is over and Hamas is utterly destroyed, 
that Israel can demonstrate magnanimity in peace, and maybe, maybe we can make some progress out of this whole thing. We've been talking for more than an hour, Keith. I think the only person left listening is going to be my mother. So uh, we should probably wrap this up. But uh, this is going to be presumably a long fight. And so I think there will be an opportunity to do this again. And I hope we do. For sure. For sure. And we need to hit the road. Yeah, that's right. A, a curmudgeon roadshow. But, but not during deer season. Well, of course. And not during World Fest. I understand that, too. And probably turkey season. season. Yeah. I understand that. Retirement's hard on you, please. Yeah, I'm retired, man. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, happy hunting. Thank you for the conversation. All right. Great seeing you again. Great, great chatting. Great to chat. Keith Balbuchek, thank you.